Hey everybody, welcome to the Full Frame uh, Podcast. Could you just oh. uh, just uh, take, stop and take it from the top one more time. Okay, okay, you ready? Hey Michael, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thanks for having me. So Michael, um, I we were just talking about this. I listened to your indie film hustle podcast and just absolutely fell in love with that entire hour and a half, two hours that you talked with Ferrari. We actually went to lunch the next day together too. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. Could have yeah. gone on forever. Yeah. It was such a cool conversation. Um, I'm gonna put a link to it in the show notes because I think it's something every up and coming filmmaker who's trying to make it no matter where you are in the country needs to listen. Oh, I um, appreciate that. Thanks. What was really, what struck me though, and we talked about this too before we started recording, was you're this really, you're this working writer, producer, director who's releasing, you know, you released five to what, nine films, a, you know, every year. Well, and I've been averaging about six films a year lately. I've already done five this year. Yeah. Uh, I just had one released to Netflix just last week called Deviant Love. And uh, I'll probably shoot two more movies this year. So seven this year. I was hoping to do eight, but uh, uh, like I said, my son's having surgery. So that's going to actually uh, uh, have a little blip in the schedule there, but that's okay. What was really fascinating, um, you've got an incredible life story in terms of your connection to the film industry and being in it basically your entire life. But you reach your kind of business plan or how you operate is you reach out to production companies and ask about their slate and what they are interested. And then you go and write those films and produce them. Yeah, it's a really important uh, side of the business that I think is important for people to understand how it works. And honestly, the way mine works though is really because I've been making so many movies through the years. I mean, I've, I've been working, I've been making movies since 1992. I mean, you're talking about like 27 years. And only really in the last like five years has my track record gotten up to a point where I can contact the company and they can trust me to make a movie. Mm -hmm. So I think what's critical for your listeners who are younger, okay, I just turned 51 years old. So we're probably talking a lot of guys in their 20s or girls yeah. in their 20s, um, is that you got to put the time in, you got to work, you got to keep, you got to keep working. It's not going to happen overnight. If mm -hmm. it does, hey, that's great. But it happens very, very seldomly. The problem is the people that it happens overnight for, uh, um, it gets promoted and advertised and it's in the media and everybody thinks that that's what happens. But listen, I've been working a long time and, but it's a great thing to work at making movies, right. but you've got to work yourself to a place to build up a track record. Um, just like any business where then a business can trust you to make their films for them. And so what I do is I find companies who need content and companies that need content who generally need, uh, don't have a lot of money to spend. Uh, we're not talking about studio pictures. We're talking about lower budget movies under a million dollars and they understand the commercial nature of the business. So these companies are generally looking for female centric thrillers that play on the lifetime channel, mm -hmm. hallmark rom romantic movie, you know, comedies. So, you know, I, I, if you, if you ask somebody who's the biggest buyer of independent film, uh, it's not Sundance channel. It's not uh, HBO. It's like lifetime and hallmark ion channel you know so yeah. I, I we all want to make alien we all want to make friday the 13th we all you know i mean i mean my dream would be i mean look at this brad pitt movie it's at astra you know that's right. cool right but still if you're a filmmaker and you're a storyteller and you understand the language of film and you really enjoy the process the process right of making films then you should be okay making the lifetime movie 
you know, make five lifetime type movies and then get a chance to make your, your whatever movie or make a romantic comedy and then indulge yourself in it and make the best damn one you can. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I talked to a bunch of filmmakers who have had success, but then there are also filmmakers that have done the small little indie film and it's just not gone anywhere. Well, well to a, listen, a range it's, of really, people. it's really important for people to learn to understand the small indie film will go never go anywhere unless you have a name actor. Okay. The mm -hmm. only anchor that's going to get you, I mean, and there's, of course, there's anomalies and things, and, but generally the only anchor that's going to get you anywhere with your movies, if you have a name actor, Yeah, hard to get a name actor, if you, you know, it's virtually impossible to get a name actor. A name actor is not going to do your movie unless you pay them hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars. So then where do you go? Well, then maybe then you move in the genre category where maybe you don't need a name, but you could find TV actors. Like for instance, you're in the Virginia, Maryland area and all that, right? Maybe what you do is you search out television actors or movie actors who make that their home, who live yeah. there or from there. And maybe you can get them on your movie uh, um, and they'd be happy to be, do a film in your area. So now like Lifetime, for instance, doesn't require, you know, you don't have to have Tom Cruise in your Lifetime movie. You could have, for instance, uh, I just did a movie starring uh, actors named Charlotte Sullivan and Donnie Boas. Or another movie I just did uh, with Marcy Miller and Kelly Blatz. And you might not know who they are, but if you search their IMDb, you'll see that they're working actors who've done major television shows or or television shows maybe on other channels and things, but they've done a lot of episodes or soap operas. Yeah. And and that is okay for some of these television networks, you know. Hmm. Um, and it, now if you make the indie film, so so what I'm saying is the concept of indie film being some, you know, some uh, uh, you know, the, the, you're making a movie about some strange uh, sort of David Lynch meets, a, right. you know, meets an Oliver Stone meets a something movie. Um, you're you're going into a genre that's not very sellable unless it had, has big name actors. But right. if you stick to a genre that and you you track it, and you see, well, does these genres sell? Maybe you go for that genre. Yeah. When you're talking to these companies um, who are looking for content, you're having those discussions. Are they throwing out actors and actresses that they'd love to see from that TV, you know, soap opera world that you're right, like? Well, sure. so, the way, so the way it works, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll lift up the veil a little bit of how it works is that uh, I hire a casting director uh, to generally cast uh, the top three names in the movie. I and my wife generally cast everybody else. I always try to use friends should always guys out there you should always try to use your friends give them opportunities if they can act you know but uh because it's very hard for actors to get jobs uh, but they need to be able to act <laughs> sure. so you can audition them but um but for instance my cast director i use a lot lately he's a great name, guy named mark tillman and mark works in sherman oaks and he's been in the business for years and um mark though is not really actually finding the actors uh, what we're doing is uh, there's a service called the Breakdown Services, mm -hmm. and you submit your script to the Breakdown Services, and they write up character descriptions of your movie, and uh, and then they submit that, and all agencies and managers in the business get the Breakdown Services, and then they see, oh well, we're looking for a you know a twenties uh, female who can do karate and ride motorcycles, whatever, and then they'll submit all of these actors. So then what Mark Tillman will do, he will call through all of the submissions. They all, it's all on the internet. It's all very, mm -hmm. it's very uh, efficient. He'll submit, he'll, he'll, they'll submit everything. He'll call through all the submissions and he'll go through and he'll look for actors. And sometimes on those breakdowns, it'll say names only. Okay. Of course, the, the, the definition of name only is a little, is a little vague. You know, what does that mean? Is that 
is that Nicole Kidman or is that somebody who has done one episode of, of Days of Our Lives or something? But you know, the agents will just send out people. So now it's Mark's job to call through and make lists. And when they when the agent submits those people, those people are supposed to be available. And they're also supposed to know, for instance, if it's a modified low budget movie, we will put that on there, which is a SAG modified low budget movie. It pays three thirty five a day, eleven sixty six a week, and uh, um, um, and then Mark will make his list, and then that list will go to my executive producers, generally to their marketing departments. Oh, I see. And then the marketing department actually selects who they want in the movie. Wow. Um, okay. I don't even have a choice in those top three. I just get like you know, in, in fact. It's such a crapshoot sometimes getting actors because you don't know if they're available or if they're interested or a lot of times agents have very pie in the sky plans for their actors. Right. So actors will come to me later and they're like, thank God I got your movie because I needed the money. I'm like, well, your agent was playing hardball. I'm like, well, because my because the agents, the agents get 10%, right? So the agents want 10% of a major network television show. Right. Where they're gonna, you know, their actor's gonna make millions of dollars. Those are few and far between. The agent doesn't care about, you know, the the, the deal where the actor gets five thousand dollars and they're just gonna get a five hundred dollar ten percent, you know, agency fee. So, um, so you're fighting against all these forces, you know. Yeah. So when you make that list, you never expect the first one to just uh, uh, come aboard. It might be the third, fourth, fifth, or sixth. And we send it out. We have to make these. You know, we'll we'll send an offer out to an agent. And um, um, we put a deadline on it. The deadline might be you have 24 hours to read it. You might have 48 hours to read it. Depends how soon the movie's coming up. Um, so I hope that answers kind of you know your question I about mean, how the casting works. You know, it was an it was an answer with a million you know great <laughs> insights. That's so fascinating. But yeah. it's again, it's that tactile like, hey, it's this is the business type of thing. Right. That and, and what's important too for your for your listeners is that um, and filmmakers out there. The only way you can get name actors your movies is if you're doing a SAG film. So mm -hmm. you have to contact the Screen Actors Guild. They have different agreements. They have agreements uh, where you can pay actors $100 a day. That's an eight-hour day, by the way. After eight hours, you can pay overtime. Right. There's the modified low-budget agreement You know, based on the budget, which is $335 a day and $1166 a week. Things to know, $335 is an eight-hour day. Some people think, oh, I'm paying $335. And then they work them 12 hours like, oh, my gosh, that actor just made $700 and my budget's right. gone. Well, it's good. You got to know all of these, you know, there's a lot of things to know. Also, I think that some SAG agreements might be changing soon. Mm. Uh, so just people should be aware of that. But not, SAG actors will not do a movie unless it's SAG. Really make money with it without SAG actors. Gotcha. Unless your movie is, you know, the next Blair Witch Project or something. You know, right. it's, it's not easy. What are some of the really good lessons that you'd encourage with your, how you operate? What are some good lessons that you think filmmakers working in that um, system or kind of with that system would learn? Well, I think that uh, when you say getting your films made, so basically, uh, you know, I did this seminar for the Beverly Hills Film Festival once, uh, how to make a living making independent film, mm -hmm. okay? And the, the key is actually, there, the word independent, there's really two sort of uh, uh, bifurcated definitions of independent. Independent might mean, well, I'm just by myself making this movie without any studio help and I'm just an independent guy. Another independent is I'm making this really cool genre movie that's kind of like Blue Velvet, whatever, and and, uh, and meets, you know, uh, whatever film, and, and, and I'm making a really cool independent film. Well, to me, you have to look at really the business. We talked about this, is that independent should really mean uh, um, I'm an individual without the help of big budget or big studio. And I'm just a small guy. I'm just independent, making my own. But 
I'm going to make a commercial film. You know, that's how yeah. you get paid to make movies. You have to think commercially. You have to look at what's out there. You have to look at, uh, um, I mean, a good example of a company that kind of takes advantage of that to the extreme is the asylum. Okay. Yeah, right. The asylum, they'll make, they'll see the Hobbit coming out and then they'll come out with a movie that rip, rips off the Hobbit. They'll see battleship coming out and then they'll come out with a movie with a battleship on the cover and it's called something else. You know what I mean? Right. They'll, 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 they're, they're looking at, what's out there and how they can jump on to things or looking at, for instance, you know, why not? This is, this drives me crazy. It's like, if you're a 22 year old guy and you're a horror film freak and you like, you know, you're, 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 you like David Lynch or you like Cronenberg or whatever, but try to challenge yourself to watch the lifetime channel. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I know it's going to kill you. Okay. Cause you know, they, right. They're not really made for 22 year old horror film geeks or film geeks. Like, okay. But try to watch it and figure out why those movies work and if you can duplicate that. Mm -hmm. Because if you can duplicate that and actually make a commercial film um, that's a female-centric thriller, that's a lifetime movie because there's, there's a certain way that I make lifetime movies, that we make sure. lifetime movies. You know, uh, People don't live in little houses. They live in big houses. People don't like drive Subarus. They drive Mercedes. You know, The women look especially good. You know, The, right. the men are always the the jerks, you know, that, you know, there's a, there's a way the stories, you know, so maybe this is, I think uh, the disconnect that I think that people have in the independent film world, there's nothing wrong actually with trying to make a lifetime movie, which uh, you could also look at. I'm trying to make a, an Ashley Judd, Julia Roberts, sleeping with the enemy movie. But since I'm doing a lower budget, it's going to feel like a lifetime movie, you know? Right. Or, you know, tr challenge yourself to make a romantic comedy, you know, make a sweet, loving, Romantic comedy that makes people cry, that makes people laugh, and you fall in love with the characters in the end. Nothing wrong with that. If you're a storyteller and you understand the language of film and you, you're trying to learn it, stick to something commercial that can sell. Horror films, the problem with horror films is that, is that they really don't sell in the foreign markets. Mm. Um, um, horror films generally need to be really something really, really special or have a big name actor. Right. Uh, name for me one network that plays horror films regularly. I mean, really? Yeah. Who plays indie horror films? You can't get an indie horror film on, on HBO or Showtime or Stars or whatever. You know, Netflix will buy it, but Netflix, you know, that's a whole nother thing and how they pay and everything. Maybe they will. You can put it on Amazon, iTunes, but you have to then promote it to get people to watch it. You know, I, right. actually, I was watching Alex was talking about this thing happening with Distriber. Yeah, I listened to that one. Right. And there's this, 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 this notion that, well, if I put my movie up, people are going to find it and buy it. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. So it's just, I think just, I'm trying to get across to independent filmmakers that independent does that's you're independent because you're doing it on your own, but that doesn't mean you make quote unquote indie films. Right. Try and make a commercial film, you know? Yeah. Um, and um, you have to be careful too, though. If you pick an indie Phil, a low budget movie. Let's say you want to make your own version of Fast and Furious. You can't compete with Fast and Furious. It's right. never going to look as good in Fast and Furious, but you can compete with a romantic comedy. You know, you guys live near DC, right? There's no reason why you can't take an iPhone. By the way, I'm going to buy the new iPhone 11 Max Pro this weekend. <laughs> okay. Three lenses. I shoot on this sometimes. Use Filmic Pro, uh, um, uh, the app Filmic Pro. And, um, there's no reason why you can't write your film so the ending takes place uh, in front of the Lincoln Memorial, you know? Right. 
you know, maybe there's a character and his name's Lincoln and, and he's very much like Abraham Lincoln, whatever it might be, you know, yeah. and there's no reason why you can't take your camera and go film the final moment of your movie in front of Lincoln Memorial, you know, at the Washington Monument and whatever, you know, and, and you have huge production values, but you're doing romantic comedy, sure. you know, but right. you can compete. You can actually, the studio is going to do the same exact thing and they're just going to have a, a hundred people around and trucks everywhere, but it's going to look exactly like your medium shots and close-ups and even your wides can look just like a studio films. Yeah. You can't do that if you're trying to if you're trying to do an indie science fiction film or an indie action film, but you can do it with a drama or romantic comedy. Sure. If you have a dog, you know, make a dog movie. Yeah. Right? I do if have one. Dog, right there. Okay, is he well trained? <laughs> no. I mean, well, I'll tell you the trick for dogs and movies, oh, okay. okay? The trick for dogs doing tricks in movies is you don't feed them in the morning. You oh, feed them, okay. you feed them kibble all day long. So my dog trainers, okay. Debbie Pearl, I use her. She's my main one. I use Pause for Effect, her company's called. She's done big, big studio films, okay? It's just a simple trick. Dogs will do anything for food. If you feed them in the morning, their stomachs are full. They have no interest in working. Sure. Okay? If you keep the little kibble on you, you feed them. So make a dog movie. Make a really, you know, if you have if filmmakers out there, you got, you know, uh, I know I start going off. I hope I stop. No, me. no, that's okay. Uh, Robert Rodriguez, El Mariachi is a perfect example. I had heard when Robert Rodriguez did El Mariachi, he's like, okay, what do I have? I have an apartment. I have a neighborhood that I can shoot around. I have a guitar. I have a dog. I have a compound over here. I've got a girlfriend. I've got a friend who's an actor, you know, and he wrote a story using all those elements he has, you right. know? So if you're, you know, if you're a 27 year old uh, film geek and you really want to make sci-fi movies, you know, and you really want to, and we all do, you know, I'm a film geek, but you sit at home, you're like, I got two kids who are, you know, kind of fun and interesting and they're kind of crazy and they like to perform when I put my video camera on them. I've got a dog, you know, I got a cute wife, you know, I've got a friend who has a beautiful house. My house might be, I might live in an apartment, but my parents live in a really cool New England style, whatever house, you know, yeah. we could take the subway to, to Washington DC or to wherever, write a movie around all that. Yeah. Just make a commercial. You know, maybe it's a dog movie with kids, you know, maybe it's a, a romantic comedy. Maybe it's a lifetime movie, you know? So, so when you're talking to lifetime and all these other channels that are, are you just, are they giving you the, your budgets and they're kind of setting the, the budget so, for you? Or? So I don't make movies for lifetime. I make movies for companies who sell to lifetime. Okay. Mm, okay. Lifetime, lifetime isn't interested. Uh, uh, they can't, I mean, they've got a lot of people working there. They can't deal with, uh, you know, one producer here, one producer here, one. They 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 have to deal with producers, then aggregate others together. Sure. Okay. So I work for other companies that, uh, um, you know, uh, Marvista Entertainment's one that I make a lot of movies for. You can look yeah. it up. You can see. Yeah, I've looked uh, at Marvista a lot. Yeah, and Marvista makes a lot of movies like that. They make a lot of movies a year. But the way it works with the Marvista is there's there's a couple ways. Is uh, you know, I've, I've, I have an executive charge of production that I I work with closely, and. And uh, we've become very good friends through the years. And uh, and and he, uh, his name's Mike. And there's basically a few things that happen. Either Mike will uh, call me and say, hey, Mike, we have a script. And uh, can you make the script? And I'll read it. I'll be like, yeah, but it needs a little rewriting. It's not, you know, it yeah. doesn't have a proper beginning, middle, and end. It doesn't match a Lifetime movie. So then I'll do a rewrite on it, but we'll go into production. Another uh, way he might be like, uh, well, the company, 
thinks that um, Lifetime might be interested in baby snatching movies. Can you throw me 10 concepts for baby snatching movies? So I'll sit on my computer and I'll just pump out with some of these companies, you know, you write a whole treatment and they're yeah. like, uh, nobody wants to read a treatment. Okay. All right. Then I'll, okay. I'll pare it down to a, 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 a one pager. Then I send it to them. Uh, nobody really wants to read a one pager. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. So I, I'll do three sentences. Yeah. You know, then I'll do 10 concepts of three sentences and they pick one. They're like, okay, let's do that one. You're hired. Write the script. Wow. And then other times I'll just have a concept. And I'll go, hey, here's a concept. Or here's a script. You know, so, but that's because they see me as a trusted partner, a trusted content provider. Yeah. So what you have to do is you have to work your way up to a place when you're where you can be trusted. So if you're in the business of making industrial videos, uh, you know, I used to make a lot of videos for this, uh, this client in Japan who made uh, Panasonic was the main client. And he would right. come to me to make these Panasonic videos. And uh, it, was, it was great. I mean, I'd make a ton of money in a weekend and they would bring all the crew. I would just have to find locations and just put it all together. It was great. It was great business. And um, um, it, it, what I'm saying is that you can, you, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be the film business that you're growing your, your, um, your uh, trust. Right. You know, right. you could be someone who's making commercials in your town and and just building up trust that you can create a product that is a finished, attractive product that passes QC quality mm -hmm. check, you know, and that's broadcastable. And right. someone goes, Oh, he did that for them, and then she did that for them, and this, this, and this, this. And before you know it, now people go, Oh, I can I can trust you to make my reality show TV series, you know? Yeah. And then you're like, Oh, I made this reality show TV series. Well, I can trust you to make a movie, I think, because you know, I believe that you're going to stay on. It's critical. It's critical, no matter who you ever work for, that you're always on budget and on time. You cannot go over budget. It is not acceptable. That right away, you will lose all respect by any company and the word gets around. You know, mm. it's critical you stay on budget. So what you have to do is always building contingency on your budget. You know, you have to be really hyper aware of things. You have to be, uh, you can't fall in love uh, with your work. If you're, let's say you're directing a scene and 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 it's just the greatest scene you've ever directed. But now everybody's going into overtime, and right. uh, the the owner of the location is trying to get you out. And then you're going into then you have to return a rental car the next day. And now you know whatever it might be, um, you've got to know how to control yourself and be able to figure out a way to shoot that last scene quick, or just cut the day and pick it up somewhere else. You cannot go over budget. Yeah, and you can't go and you can't. I don't ever. I very 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 seldomly shoot pickups or reshoots ever. I mean. Right. The last time I did a pickup day was because I um, I was making a movie with Kathleen Quinlan, who was nominated for Academy Award for Apollo 13. She was sure. Jim Morton. She was Val Kilmer's girlfriend in The Doors. She's brilliant. And right. she's in this Lifetime movie. And of course, Lifetime wanted more Kathleen Quinlan. So they asked me to go out and shoot more Kathleen Quinlan. My executive producer of that movie is like, you know that pickup day you did? I said, it wasn't a pickup day. You know, It wasn't a reshoot day. It was they wanted more of her, you know? Right, right. Uh, um, so I don't do pickups or reshoots because, you know, you have to be, uh, you have to recognize at the end of the day, this is a monetary, budgetary, you know, movies. You just can't sit there and, you know, make your movie for, you know, you know, you can't be Francis Ford Coppola in the jungle and the budget doesn't matter anymore. And you're, you're, you're mortgaging off your house and you're, you know, and yeah, you have yeah. to, there's, you have to work within the parameters, you know? Sure. So are you mainly, are you mainly working as a producer and then you're just, you're, when you are on your sets, you're directing or is most of your year dedicated to you producing and getting these projects up and running? And then it's the two it's or three all, weeks. It's all simultaneously. I'm gotcha. writing, directing, producing, and I'm post-supervising all my movies. Okay. okay. 
Like right now I have four movies in post. I just finished a Western that was 135 pages. I just finished writing it. And now I'm writing another movie I have to deliver on September 30th. And after that, I have to finish another movie I have to deliver the following week. Um, also within that time, I take meetings with people because I need to always, you need to always keep networking because, you know, years ago, my wife and I've been married eight and a half years and she's an actress and she gets it and all. But years ago, I would have these meetings with people and she'd be like, why are you having this meeting with this guy? You don't even know him. And, and it sounds bogus and this and that. I'm like, listen, you never know what's going to happen. You know, she learned that those meetings a year or two or three years later, actually, later actually came to fruition. Right. Or maybe half of them came to fruition, or maybe even just a tenth of them came to fruition. But they do, you know. So you have to take the time to be networking with people. I, another critical thing, Zach, is is if you're a director, you have to say I'm a director. It's really, mm -hmm. really important. Get a business card, writer, director, producer. You have to live the life and tell people because you never know when some person knows another person knows another person. Yeah. You know that 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 they might go. Do you know any directors? Actually, I do. This guy gave me his card as a director. You know. So. You know, you got to speak it out there and put it out there and let people yeah. know, you know, it's, it's, I, I hate, here's the thing is that I am not in the studio. Like studios don't talk to me. Okay. Sure. I've, I've directed 63 movies. I've produced over a hundred movies and I go and have a meeting at Sony and they're like, well, I maybe would hire you to, to produce, but I wouldn't hire you to direct. Well, why? Well, because my executives, they like to find that, like that go-to for per, that person that, you know, maybe they got into Sundance, they made some really hip film and, and then they give them a film to do and the film ends up falling apart. Sure. Or they need to bring in someone else. They need to bring in Ron Howard to direct the whatever it might be, you know. Um, so, um, you know, I live off in the fringes of all this stuff, but you can live on the fringes. Don't get caught up in the whole studio world. Just you got to recognize to make commercial product to make a living, you know. Sure. Not only to make a living, I make a very good living making films. And I get to do what I love all day long. So I'm writing, directing, producing, post supervising. I'm doing it all. Everything sort of overlaps. And, uh, and it's the only way you got to keep it going. Like the train is going and you have to like, you know, a steam train, you have to keep giving coal to right. the, the furnace. That's kind of how my life is. I have to keep, I'm just constantly feeding coal, but, but I, I mean, it's what I do. I, it's, it's not like I'm sitting in a factory and I have to like, you know, the parts keep coming and I have to keep going. It's, you know, uh, so there's no reason why your listeners, uh, you know, they might have their other job. You got, you got to make a living. So you have your other right. job, but I mean, I, you know, I, I make a living making films. I'm 51 years old. I still am only sleeping five hours a night because I'm up <laughs> doing this. Right. So there's no reason if you're working your eight hour a day job, there's no reason why you can't be up at night writing scripts. Everybody right. should write scripts, by the way. Everybody should have a script. And if you can't write a script, you think you can, try. And if you can't, find a friend who can, get together. You know, I don't write music. I don't, I can't even keep a beat, but I actually started two music publishing companies. And I found, okay. and I have a friend who's a, a, a brilliant musician and composer and he's a singer and I found someone else to do lyrics and I found someone else who's a singer and I put them all together and now I'm a music producer. Who knew, you know? Yeah. Um, and I couldn't tell you a lick about music, but it turns out I'm actually not bad at when the lyrics come and the music's come, music's come, music comes and I, I could sort of, you know, help with the process and make it better. Yeah. So your listeners, there's no reason why they can't, you know, at night after work, start pounding out a script or talk to a friend who writes a script and then you give your ideas and now it's both of your script. You know, there's no reason why you can't be filming things uh, uh, after hours. Uh, there's no reason not to be doing if you love it. And if you love it, you don't mind. Sure. You know? Okay. So you were talking about, uh, it's only until about five years ago that you, be, 
you got into this rhythm of constantly producing, directing, and you kind of got uh, got your train up and running. What was there a key film or a key? Well, well, let know, me or say was it all of your contacts kind of at the? Yeah, I mean, maybe it was longer than five years ago. I mean, about twelve years ago. Uh, you, you know what happened was, I mean, if we go back in time, I started, uh, uh, and I, I don't know how many of your viewers, I've, I've, my background, uh, um, and you know, you had mentioned that I, I was, my, my father was in the business, um, and my father worked for 20th Century Fox, but I had no interest in making movies, and I went to architecture school, and after architecture school, my dad was making this really cheesy, low-budget movie called Fraternity Demon, um, and my brother and I decided to work on it. And then I got the film bug. And so instead of going for my master's in architecture, I started making movies. So now working for my father, I, I it did not particularly help in my career because uh, first of all, I didn't really know what my career was. I didn't know I wanted to make movies. What I'm saying is what I did for my father was I just got in there and just did everything I could. Yeah. And I started running his video label and started producing his movies and went with him in the film markets. So it's not to say that somebody else couldn't do what I did too, is find a company you know, move to LA or find a company in the East coast or whatever, or just get in the trenches and start working. Right. So any company you work for and they see you have passion and you're willing to do anything. And, uh, uh, and that's kind of what happened with my, with my dad. He's like, Oh, well, my son's willing to do anything. So forget about masters, his master's degree, you know, right. I'm going to, I'm going to use him to help me make my movies. Cause I ended up stabilizing his business because uh, okay. things were going crazy. He was hiring, you know, my dad, my dad doesn't direct, doesn't write, doesn't produce. He just, he just had the money and was just paying for these low budget movies. Sure. And um, so things were going haywire because he would hire all these people who didn't know what they're doing. So I sort of stabilized things. So there's no reason why other people can't find ways to get in with companies. And I'm just saying, show a passion, have a work ethic, you know, right. a passion and work ethic. But um, so other companies then saw what I was doing for my dad and asked me to produce for them. Then okay. another company asked me to, then I, then I was line producing a movie and, I, your listeners, I would imagine, know what a line producer is, but it's yeah, important yeah. to know the the difference. As a line producer, for those who don't know, is um, like a contractor of a house. I mean, when you build a house, you hire a contractor. When you right. make a movie, you hire a line producer to put all the pieces together. But um, so, I was line producer for companies, and I was line producing for this one guy, and his director fell out. And then he said, "I said, why don't you direct the movie?" And he said, "No, no, I don't know anything about directing movies." And I and then he said, "Why don't we co-direct?" And I said, "Absolutely not. Don't ever co-direct a film, by the way." Ever, 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 ever. Okay, it does not benefit you or your friend. You end up in a fight in the end. Okay, uh, I, I line produced a movie with two co-directors, and they hated each other at the end. I'm still <laughs> friends with both of them, though. But um, but separately. Uh, uh, yeah, they don't talk to each other. Um, so I got in. So basically, he finally said, "Well, why don't you direct it?" And I said, "Yes." But I felt comfortable directing it because I had produced, I think, 30 movies by then, and I line produced 12. 13 movies. I'm not line produced. I had line produced 30 movies. I AD'd 12 or 13 movies. ADing is really the best way to learn how to direct. 100. percent mm. Okay. Directing is a is a leadership job. It's a control position. It's a uh, uh, if you if you know people can never see you sweat when you're directing. You know you have right. to. And so when you're ADing, you're running a crew. You're helping the director. And if you're good, you're actually helping set up shots. And you're you're there in the trenches. Anyways. So I got that one chance to direct a movie and I took it. And then another company said, oh, you directed a movie? The same company I'd been producing for, they said, oh, well, now you're a director. So here's a movie. So they gave me a movie to direct. And then they gave me another movie to direct. And then somebody else heard that I was directing movies and producing movies. So this guy said, hey, I want to make these low budget 
serial killer movies, whole budget horror movies. I said, okay, you got a script? He goes, no. And I said, uh, I don't have a script. He goes, well, why don't you write one? So I was like, okay. I had never written a script before. I wrote the script in three days. The movie's called The Dead Calling. I got We got Sid Haig and Leslie Easterbrook and Bill Mosley, uh, uh, Alexandra Holden. I mean, it's a damn good cast in this movie. Yeah. And uh, um, and that's the first movie I wrote. And I'm like, hey, I could I could write. I didn't know that. So then I wrote for him five, six more movies that are all based on serial killers, which, by the way, was a very, very intelligent idea. That's a, that's a gentleman named Barry Barnholtz. Um, very smart idea, which is that if you can't afford a name actor, go with a character that's famous. You know, yeah. So right. that was the concept behind that. And actually, I think that concept came from uh, – uh, a guy named Melvin Butters who who worked for Barry and uh, and Melvin was a real horror film geek and he really and he was pushing Barry to make these horror films and I think that was really Melvin's idea and um, um, so like Ed Gein was a famous serial killer so we made Ed Gein the Butcher of Plainfield and then we got Kane Hodder who's Jason from the Friday the Thirteenth movies or five mm -hmm. of them to play Ed Gein and people give us crap all the time how. Ed Gee was a small little guy, and then we get Ed Kane Hodder as this big guy. But but Kane Hodder sold the movie. That's how right. that movie that movie was distributed by Lionsgate. That movie did really really well. That movie you could still watch it on uh, on iTunes and all that today. You know, yeah. um, so it's a really good tip for people is that if you can't afford a name actor, if you're not interested in making romantic comedies or lifetime thrillers, whatever, fine. Think of a somebody famous, and uh, you know I've done him on. Bundy. I did one on the Boston Strangler. I did one on Richard Speck, who was a, a serial yep. killer. Henry Lee Lucas, called Drifter. Ed Gein. Um, oh, right. BTK. Watch my BTK movie, and Kane Hodder's performance as Dennis Rader is amazing. He is so good. In fact, Kane put me in his autobiography as the first person to give him a real acting job without the mask on. But wow. if you watch my BTK movie, I mean, we made it in 10 days for $125,000. Yeah. You know? So of course it's not going to be, you know, equal to you know, uh, Mine Hunters or, or Zodiac or something. But it's pretty damn good actually. It's enjoyable to watch, and Kane's performance is amazing. But um, you know, that's another way to kind of defeat the system. You know, yeah. So, um, you know, you could do a movie on a celebrity. I mean, maybe you're a jazz fan or something. You know, or maybe you're a, 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 a you know, you're a classic rock fan, and you pick a celebrity who's passed away, and you do a movie about that person. Yeah. You know, and then you find an act, and then before you know it, you know, you, you've got a movie that's worth distribution without name actors. You know? There you go. So what are you excited about that you're working on right now? Literally after we do our podcast, I'm going to head to my post house to review the final version of a movie I've been working on for a year. Wow. Um, I get movies done in like three months, but this is a special movie and it's taken time, but it's a Western called Soldier's Heart. It stars... Uh, the two main leads are uh, Neil Bledsoe and Rob Mays, who are actors who've been around. Rob Mays was in Mistresses and John Dies in the End, which a lot of your, your listeners probably know of. And uh, also starred Anna Lynn McCord, uh, who was in 90210 and uh, Dallas and stuff like that. But also Jake Busey. I got Jake Busey to be in the film. Uh, and you, by the way, the way I got Jake Busey was um, a lot of your listeners might know who Lou Temple is. Uh, Lou Temple is, uh, is, he's been in a lot of big movies, a lot of indie films. He's a really interesting guy. He's really textured, a lot of character. And, um, and he did one movie for me. So we've stayed in touch, become friends, but I called Lou to be in the movie. He's like, Oh Mike, the dates don't work. He's like, but I know this guy that'll probably want to do it. 
You might know him. His name's Jake Busey. I'm like, come on. Are you kidding me? J- of course, Jake Busey. So he gives me his phone number. I call Jake Busey. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. You know, so I got Jake's Busey, Jake Busey. James Russo is another actor I've known through the years. And we talked periodically. James Russo was in Beverly Hills Cop and Open Range yeah. with Robert Duvall and Extremities with Farrah Fawcett. If you see that movie, it's freaking amazing. Yeah. Um, um, and I also got Val Kilmer. Uh, oh, okay. So, now, okay. I do know which film you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. And also a friend of mine has been in a lot of my movies, been in five or six, his name Michael Bowen. Michael Bowen was... If you saw Kill Bill, Buck with the, you know, Uma Thurman kills him with his head in yep. the door and he's in Walking Tall with The Rock and, and, and Magnolia and Breaking Bad. Michael Bowen is great. And I got Michael Bowen to be in the movie. You know, so, I mean, I have this amazing cast in this Western. The Western is two and a half hours long. I shot it widescreen. I had three cameras. I, uh, it's a, 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 a great uh, independent uh, financier named Rick Peel. And my other co-producer is Peter Schreko, who is... Um, Peter is the go-to Western guy. Peter's also in the movie. Peter was Texas Jack from Million and Tombstone. Okay. And if you want to make a Western, you call up Peter. He has all the guns, all the costumes, all the props, the horses, the whole thing. Yeah. So Peter's the one who actually brought me in with Rick to make the movie. So we've been working on this thing. And uh, and it's epic. It's It's awesome. And I can't wait. Today is the day when actually everything's done. All the wow. visual effects in, all the music, all the sound, everything. And now I can finally screen it and sell it. So I'm trying to get Paramount to take it or Sony or Netflix and uh, we'll see. But it's uh, so that I'm excited about a lot, you know. And by the way, I just finished another Western, which we're going to shoot mid-October for Rick oh, and, wow. uh, and Peter. But but the relationship with Rick came through my relationship with Peter. Peter knows me as being someone who's solid, who's on time, who's on budget, who who treats people well. Mm-hmm. I'm not a screamer. I, I treat people very respectfully on set. I mean, all these things. Peter has a group of guys that he calls the buckaroos. They're all the Western extras. They yeah. come dressed in the wardrobe. And I, what I do is if I, you know, the first day on Soldier's Heart where I had the buckaroos, I had like 30 of them on set. I learned all of their names. Yeah. Right away when you learn extras names, they're like, oh my God, this guy actually cares, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I, I care, but I also learned their names so I can go, hey, Dave, go there. Hey, you know, Kelly, go there, you know? So it's beneficial yeah. for you to use them, learn their names, but they, it, it builds respect. But, you know, a track record, building respect out of people, looking like somebody who does work hard and pumping out work and, and making quality work, that's really important too. Like understanding, the you know, when your mother and my mother are on, uh, watching television and they're changing channels, they can tell the difference between a soap opera and a feature film, right. a studio film. Why can they tell the difference? They can't explain it, okay? But they can tell the difference. And the difference has to be with is the lenses, the film language, the shallow depth of field, the you know the 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 the, the process, the selection, the perspective, the color, all these things that go in the performance. They can't explain it. Right. But you, as a filmmaker, whether you're working a low budget or a big budget, you know, and most most importantly, when you're lo- working with very little money, so you have to make sure that you're making quality productions. You know, so yeah. like. You and I in these spaces that we're in right now, you know, yeah. like, uh, you know, your listeners don't know, but you just have a white wall and Indiana Jones poster behind you. And I have right. white walls with, with Star Wars and, and uh, Kung Fu Panda behind me. Like, do not shoot a movie in our rooms that we're in right now, you know? <laughs> I mean, if you go to a forest, if you have, if you have um, uh, Brad Pitt in a forest, uh, you can shoot in a forest and actually if you use the right lens and the right shallow depth of field and the right makeup on his face, 
your film can look just like a $200 million film, you know? So it's important that people are on time, on budget, making as quality of stuff as they can. So when you show people your stuff looks really good, you know, making relationships, forging, trusting relationships, uh, not putting out, not having a bad word out on you because people, they're going to put their money on you, you know, and they have to trust you. Taking care of their money, that's really critical too. That's a whole nother thing that I do that nobody ever asked me about, like podcasts. But accounting yeah. is so critical. Like you have to keep really copious books. You have to you have to make sure it's really tempting to like fill up a, a, a tank of gas with you know the movie money right. when you know you're you know, I mean it's really tempting to buy yourself lunch. Don't do it. Don't ever fall to those levels because you want to be the utmost person you can so that investors trust you and they believe in you and and maybe this investor is not going to make a movie again but then but that guy tells another guy he's like i really trusted that guy the, yeah. the numbers the receipts the invoices the the accounting the movie past specs the movie played the person was courteous the person was nice i mean the actors like you that's another thing as i have with actors i have a really good relationship with my actors because i i get along with them really well they respect me so i have actors come back and work for me a lot you know yeah. every year my wife and i have a big christmas party Big Christmas party, right? 100 to 150 people at our house. It's only actors. I don't have producers. I don't have yeah. crew. I have actors because my relationship with my actors is really important. So it's a way to thank them, but it's a way to solidify that relationship and, sure. and, and let them know what we think about them and how important that is. So all of these things come into play in your career because a career is, is a history, you know? And one little thing on your career uh, can really screw it up and really taint your career. You don't want that. So you want to work or have enough that maybe you made that one mistake, but the 10 other things are good. So it erases the one mistake, Sure. you know? So yeah. it's good to just be an upstanding person. I just want to make sure that I'm answering questions and giving, providing information for people to empower them to go out and do the same thing that I've done. And I know that people might go, well, he had a, he had a, he had an extra jump at it because his dad was in the business. You know, of course my dad was in the low budget, low, low end of the business, right. you know? But, but, and I wanted to be an architect. I didn't want to make movies. So a lot of people have an advantage over me because they've loved and, you know, uh, my, you know, I'll give you an example. My brother growing up was best friends with JJ Abrams. Okay. And JJ Abrams, when I was a kid was always making super eight movies. My brother would go to his house and make super eight movies. His dad was a television producer. I, I think his grandfather maybe owned a company that manufactured cameras or something. I can't remember what it was, but that guy had a leg up, you know? Yeah. Right. Now, I I didn't even didn't even dawn on me to make movies until I was 23 years old, you know. So a lot of your listeners, they've been thinking about this for years and also, you know, uh uh having access to I mean when I when I started when well, when I was a kid there were no VHS, there were no video stores and then right. video video stores came. So then you would buy videos and VHS, but now you can watch every single movie in existence on your computer. So you have there's no reason for you, you know, so you, you have the opportunity to research and understand, and then you can watch all these things about the making of, you can listen to podcasts. So I didn't have that. So as much as I had an advantage of working with my dad, I also didn't have the advantage of, uh, of, of being, you know, uh, uh, a film geek at a young age, you know? Right. Yeah. No, there is a, there is an aspect of that, that, that might benefit in some ways too, is that I, I, I'm, I'm not a believer in film schools. I don't believe mm-hmm. in going to film school. I went to architecture school. I think architecture school is a great education for making movies. Uh, well, let me just ask you the question: Like, why not film school? What's okay. your so, argument against film school? I don't think film schools. 
I, you know, I don't think generally film schools teach people how to be filmmakers. Um, just like architecture school didn't teach me how to be an architect. Like if someone said, I want to go to architecture school, be an architect, I'd be like, don't go to architecture school, be an architect. That's a terrible way to be an architect. To be an architect, you really have to work in the trenches, you know, at an architecture firm or doing construction, literally right. hammering two by fours, you know, uh, framing houses. That's to me the best way to learn how to be an architect. Architecture school is a visual uh, sort of cornucopia of, of, you know, they're, they're throwing these things at you. Like you can be Frank Geary, you can be Frank Lloyd Wright, you could be, uh, uh, you know, the greatest architects ever. And, um, and you're going to probably graduate architecture school and end up making shopping malls for a while, you know, right. Um, film school is kind of the same thing. I find that all the people who come from film schools that come work for me, they don't know the difference between a C stand and a combo stand. They don't know the, and I, I know film school graduates going to be mad at me and think, Oh, you know, he's Pfeiffer's just saying this, but Yes, there's there's those who go to schools and they and they really do learn and and they get a great education. Or there are some film schools, um, like a lot of people will go to big film schools at big universities and they come out and like, they don't know anything. And then I I I I'll meet guys who went to a place like Full Sail, yeah. And these yeah. guys they're ready to work in the business the moment they come out. You know, right. so if you do go to film school, you gotta first of all decide: Am I going to film school to be you know philosophical about film? You know, right. and 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 kind of learn what film is about as an artistic medium, or am I going to film school to to really get the uh, the uh, uh, you know really just the 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 wood framing right. hammering? You know, now a film school should provide both, I think. But my point is that you can go to school for architecture, you can go to school for theater, you can go to school for acting, you can go to school for. Uh, my son is going to go to uh, uh, hopefully an Ivy League school for the classics. He's already speaking Latin and, and Roman and Greek history. Like background, having a vast background in something else, I think is really critical. Because if your background is just films and films, then you're not living an aspect of life that you're going to need to rely on right. when you when you're making films. Okay, and uh, so I think that you it's not a bad idea to go to school. Maybe something with a visual, I think a visual medium is really important because I feel the architecture school is the best education for filmmaking because it's perspective and it's color and it's, uh, uh, um, it's design process. That's a really important part. Making a building, you know, we talk about form follows function in buildings. When you, when you, when you design a commercial building, it needs bathrooms, it needs conference rooms, it needs a, a lecture hall, it needs whatever, whatever. Same thing with a movie. You, right. you, your movie needs certain things story-wise, but then the production needs. So the whole design process, you know, seeing things from sort of a, a bigger picture, but you can, you can come to Los Angeles, go to Atlanta, go to New York, wherever it might be, get on Craigslist and go get jobs on movies. Maybe as a PA, you know, I, I, you know, it's against the law to work for free, but if somebody offered me a job on a movie set, and I never worked on one. And they said, well, you know, you're going to work for free. I might take it if I can afford it. Uh, yeah. Me, I, nobody works for free for me. The minimum is minimum wage is $14.25 an hour in Los Angeles for a company that hires 26 or more people. So, you know, PAs make $200 a day working for me. Yeah. Um, I'm paying them to learn. Right. And then the PAs that have a passion for it, they learn more on three weeks on a film set of mine than they will in like two years of college. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I say to my PAs, I, I mean, I'll, I'll take my PAs. I'll put them on camera to operate. I'll, I'll bring them over to the camera department and go, you need to teach this guy F-stops and filters and uh, how, to, how to open and close a tripod. Yeah. Like, open and close a tripod is actually very complicated. Yeah. You know, yeah. you got a 40, 50-pound camera on top of the thing. You know, you got the DP holding it. You know, I mean, that's 
or you know, it's one of the most complicated things is just how to use a C stand and a gobo arm, you right. know, what side to put the sandbag on. Those are really critical things to learn. And so you can get paid to learn how to make movies on a film set. You can also listen to podcasts, watch making ofs, uh, 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 see interviews with, with great directors, study Hitchcock, study, uh, Truffaut, study Fellini, whatever you want, you know, uh, um, and so you can educate yourself. But if you want to go to college and you want to make movies, I personally think you might be better off doing a degree in something that's totally different. Uh, it might be in the arts, it might be in a visual medium or history, yeah, maybe some writing or something. And, and that will actually just give you more of a base to work from. So when you're like me at 51 years old and you're trying to write the next script, and somebody asked you to write a script about, you know, Greek history. I got to turn to my 17 year old to know about Greek history, you know? All right, all right. <laughs> so, um, but I think that really film learning film is really about just doing it. Just, yeah. just, you know, I love to show people that Shia LaBeouf video, you know, a video where he's on green screen. He's like, just yeah. do it. Have you yeah. seen that? Yeah. I tell people that I show people that video all the time. I'm like, just, just do it. Yeah. Like what, you can make a movie on this. Steven yeah. Soderbergh, has released two feature films shot on iPhones. Yeah. Unsane and High Flying Bird, right? Yep. By the way, the new iPhone 11 Max Pro, I was watching this thing on it, and when um, it's got three lenses, right? Right. And when Filmic Pro comes out, they're going to have an updated Filmic Pro yeah. app for it. The front-facing camera is 4K. This is 4K. And you'll be able to record uh, both sides of a conversation in yeah. 4K yeah. at the same time. Oh my God. So think about that. That could be really interesting. Let's say you're doing a scene where two people are just yelling at each other. Yeah. Right. And you don't want to shoot one side, then shoot the other side. You want to do dual cameras. You know, you could put your iPhone right in the middle, yeah. you know, and have one guy looking a little off and the other guy looking a little off or, you know, so that, so that they're not, or, or have them looking straight at the, at the, at the lens and record two streams at once on an iPhone. That's Imagine nuts. that's cool. You know, go to like your nicest, most favorite restaurant in Washington, D.C., okay? It might cost you $300 for that meal, okay? Find a restaurant that's well lit. Yeah. Okay? Uh, bring a little candle with you or something, put in the middle, and shoot a scene in that restaurant. Steal the scene in the restaurant, yeah. you know? Now, so you, it might have cost you $300 for the dinner, but if you actually bought that location, the restaurant, with all those extras, it would cost you $25,000. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, is there anything illegal about bringing an iPhone and shooting a scene in a movie? And by the way, uh, this is another thing that, uh, that I know your listeners know, but I don't know if they really quite comprehend how much we fix sound in post. Yeah. Virtually all sound is, is, is ADR. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Anything that we shoot inside a car is ADR. Anything we shoot on the streets of like New York or LA, we have to fix all of it. So people get really caught up in what they're recording sound with, you know, yeah. and, and, and they have to have a boom operator. As long as you got guide track, you can fix your sound. Yeah. And 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 a lot of times, like for me commercially, I have to have really good sound. The sound has to pass QC. So sure. even though I have, you know, I have one of the best sound mixers in the business works for me. His name is uh, Stacy Hill. Stacy's the sound mixer on Fresh Off the Boat. Uh, the guy is one of the best in the business, and he works for me because he's my friend, and we like to work together, and we're buddies. We play hockey together and stuff. But as good as Stacy is. Stacy will admit to you, he cannot record perfect sound everywhere. He can't record perfect sound in the car. He can't get perfect sound in the streets. If you're shooting and time is of the essence and an airplane goes over and you wait for that, oh, crap, and then right when that airplane leaves, another airplane comes, you can't keep waiting on airplanes. You got to shoot. Right. But you're going to fix it. 
you fix it later. So, you know, to go back to the, you know, and I'm using Washington DC as a, as an example, because it's such an amazing city, but you know, you could write a movie where you go from DC to Philadelphia to New York, you know, and you pick your monuments to go to, right. and then your movie looks spectacular. And then what you do, here's another trick that, that I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, but I use it all the time. And this is a way I enhance movies exponentially is I go to websites like Pond5, yep. okay, and Shutterstock, but mainly Pond5. I like Pond5. And I buy, I mean, I spend anywhere from $750 to $5,000 a movie on stock shots. Yeah. You know? I pay for a helicopter. And these days, my, you know, I have a drone. I have a, a, a DJI Mavic Pro 2, which is great. But, man, people don't want you flying that thing in places. Right. It's, it's like you've got to be this. It's like you're going to be arrested. You're a criminal, you know, and. It's it's insane. Uh, I mean, it's just a stupid toy helicopter. I mean, I was okay. I was shooting the western on a ranch, and I had a permit, and I had a fireman there. And we had a water truck, and then the fireman hears he says someone mentioned something about a drone. Are you flying a drone? I'm like, uh, maybe. He goes, well, it's not on your permit. You can't fly a drone. I said, it's a toy helicopter I bought from Best Buy. Why can't I fly a drone? Oh well, the FAA and this. Uh, oh, fine. Oh my okay. god. So, anyways, so if you go on Pond Five. And you're doing a movie in Philadelphia, New York, and DC, you know, budget two thousand dollars for epic aerial shots of of you know the Capitol and the White House, the Washington Monument, you know, um, and epic shots of Independence Hall and uh, you know, in Philadelphia, you know, and and yeah. uh, and and the Empire State Building and all that. And now you have a movie that's so robust, you know. And then right. this is something important that I implore to people too is. You know what is the what is the 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 best most important shot in a movie that's also the least uh, costly movie to, uh, least costly shot to do? It's a close up. Mm. It's a close up. Okay, it's a close up. So close up's the cheapest shot to shoot, right? I yeah. mean, yeah. what does it take to shoot a close up? You can be anywhere. You have a shallow depth of field. You can, you know, you're not in New York City. You could take your 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 actor to downtown LA, and the background goes at focus. Now you look like you're in New York City. Right, but we go to the movies to see people. Okay, if you have a movie without people, nobody wants to see it. We go to yeah. see emotions. Emotions are delineated in people's eyes. You know, that's where we see our souls. You know, um, so the cheapest shot you can shoot in a movie, and the most important shot I think is a close-up. So, you know, if you have these big, vast aerials that you bought on Pond Five of New York and Philadelphia and DC, and then you shoot your characters. Uh, uh, in your medium shots and close-ups, you've established where you are, but now your medium shots and close-ups, those are the most important shots, you know, and then you can, you know, you can throw your background out of focus. The audience thinks that you're in these places, but listen, New York city, you don't need a permit to shoot in New York city, right. uh, uh, to shoot on the streets, of New York city handheld or with a tripod, you don't need a permit. It's amazing. LA, you need permits everywhere. It's yeah. Yeah. I've shot in New York. It's, it, it is free. It is very yeah. free. I've shoot all over the streets of New York. It's amazing. And, um, so there's nothing stopping. So there's nothing stopping your listeners to to making robust, expensive-looking movies. You know, just you got to have an eye. You know, you really yeah. have to have an eye. So you have to really understand your lens. You have to understand film language. Your mother, my mother, don't know the difference between a soap opera and a studio film, but they they can see there's a difference. They can't explain it. Right. A lot of it also comes from what language of film you use, which lenses you use, where you place the camera, how yeah. you move the camera, understanding crossing the line. Understanding, you know, screen direction across the line, all that kind of stuff, you know. So that leads me to the question: like, how do you prep for your sets? Um, okay. Well, 
here's something that I, uh, I don't make shot lists and I don't make storyboards. Mm, okay. okay. Uh, it's all just out of my head in the moment. Okay. Mm. So, uh, something I, 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 I tell everybody is, uh, uh, a director's job is not, your job is not to tell actors how to act. It's your job to tell them where to go. It's your job to direct the crew. Now, if an actor sucks, you got to tell them how to act. Okay. But generally, if you have good actors, uh, you can have a discussion with them before. You can talk about your characters and things. Just get and just set them free. And yeah. you tell them, don't feel like you have to say the script verbatim. Make right. it your own. That's your character now. You know. So your actor is free. Um, now your job is to block the scene. Okay. Your job as a director is to tell the actors where to go, and then your job is to direct your crew and. As to the look and feel you want, as to lenses, as the camera movement, it's all your world. It's not your DP's world, not your AD's world. It's your world. And you have to take control, by the way, of your set. You have to be like, this is my set. I say it all the time to my crew. It's a dictatorship and I'm the dick. Sorry about it. But if you if it goes that way, you'll get home on time. We'll get the movie made. Everybody will be happy. And it's true. They want Everybody wants a leader. They don't want indecisiveness. They don't, a crew cannot stand when the DP and the AD and the director and an exec producer are all sitting in a corner talking about a scene that for 20 minutes that could have been shooting. Right. So you really got to be the dictator of your set in a nice way, of course, treat people well, always treat people well, treat people respectfully. But so it's your job to block the scene, you know? So if a scene takes, if the script, you read the script and it says, well, somebody comes to the door and then they come to the door, they hit the person over the head, they drag them through the house, they bring them to the living room. Uh, um, and then they uh, tie them up and then cut and then where you know like so get your actors out there rehearse that entire sequence give yeah. them the space to work but say well I, I need you at the door okay but I got this idea for this one shot where when you go down you know we're gonna uh, uh, you're gonna clear frame and then you're gonna hit the ground hard when you hit the ground we're gonna do it in reverse and then we're gonna play it back forward so it looked like your head hit the ground you know so use all these camera tricks and then I, I'm gonna see you drag the person to the ground and, and then I'm going to have this big wide shot that shows the whole house and it's going to take you to the couch, you know? So let's rehearse that whole sequence, right? Yeah. So you rehearse the whole sequence, right? Your DP watches, your production designer watches, everybody watches. And then you're like, okay, I like that sequence, but what if we did this? Or your actor might be like, can I do this instead? Like, okay, I like that. And we'll go with that. Or you'll give them a little leeway. But you rehearse that whole sequence. You, you, you put that sequence in concrete. Like, this is what it's going to be. We're not going to deviate from that, maybe a little bit here and there. And then you look at your zones of coverage, okay? Your zones of coverage. You have a zone of coverage now at the door. You might have a zone of coverage, like let's say somebody hit the person or down on the ground, the person gets on top of that person, they're yelling at them. Now you have a zone of coverage that's up and down, the person's on top of the other. Then they're going to drag them into the living room. And maybe in the living room, there's a moment where there's like some screaming and yelling in a fight. So now I have a zone of coverage in the living room. And then that person gets dragged to the couch. And then the the bad guy comes to the couch, the person on the couch and leans over them and says something to them and then punches them in the face. So there's a zone of coverage there. So you have a zone of coverage at the door. You have a zone of coverage in the foyer. You have a zone of coverage in the living room. You have a zone of coverage on the couch, you know, and you might shoot a master. So, you know, you don't need storyboards. You don't need shot lists. You need right. to have an idea of what that blocking is, watch it. And then if you know what you're doing and you've learned the language of film, your mind, you will start seeing those shots instantly. What I need, okay. Well, the door, you know, I need a, a medium and a close up, and a medium and a close up, and then maybe I'll do a low angle. That's kind of cool because that's really good for like film noir stuff. And then, um, uh, and now I've got them in the door. Now I've got to figure out a way to get them on the ground. So I'm, I'm I need the person getting hit, and they clear frame, and then they hit the ground. And now I'm 
have these shots I need, you know? And then I want to do this wide shot that dollies from the foyer. Maybe the house has some cool architecture to it, right? It's where architecture school comes in. So I'm going to dolly from the door across the hallway, past the living room where there's like some openings and then see the living room wide. And I'm, I want to see that shot all the way through, you know? So now I have that shot. So, you know, once you've looked at the blocking, so what you do is you, you kind of work out this blocking with your actors. Okay. And while you're working out the blocking, you as a director need to be looking at these shots, thinking about what these shots might be. Your DP might have some suggestions and things. Um, you know, uh, I generally don't like my DPs giving me any suggestions for shots. Just I'll tell you what you're going to have. And just because I just think two brain movies don't work. Like it's got to be one source and, you know, and, um, and then, uh, and then you just go off and you just start shooting all the pieces. You just shoot, shoot, shoot all the pieces, you know? And before you know it, you have a spectacular scene that really plays well. What has changed? What are some, have there been big changes across the past 10 years that have directly impacted you and how you oh, work? I mean, over the last 10 years has been enormous when you think about it. I mean, we've gone from VHS to DVD to streaming to, I mean, I hear the next thing really is going to be AVOD or what they call AVOD, right? You have VOD, video on demand. You have SVOD subscription. But supposedly now you've got Disney with their whole uh, subscription service, Apple with their subscription service, Netflix. So a lot of companies think people don't want to spend money anymore on these things, you know? Right. And so they're willing to watch commercials again, you know? We right. went from watching commercials, then DVR came out, and you don't have to watch commercials. You can fast forward through them, you know, to not watching commercials at all. Now, supposedly, we're willing to watch commercials again because we want to pay anymore because people are tired of having services. But the big thing that's really quite fascinating is that people are actually, I think, more hungry for content than ever. Uh, and companies are more hungry for content. You have all these services, Apple and Hulu and Amazon and iTunes and Netflix and all these cable channels and all this. And, and you still have DVDs. By the way, DVD is still actually a healthy market. I mean, Target and Walmart, but yeah. you got to be careful. DVDs, Target and Walmart, you know, faith-based films sell really well at those places. War films, Westerns, you know, along with studio films. But mm -hmm. um, um, and by the way, you can make an indie faith-based film because that's a genre unto itself. That's a really interesting genre. You can make, you can do well with that if you've got yeah. a well-made picture. You got to make it a good quality picture. But um, so it's all changed. It's constantly changing. I mean, Netflix is amazing, but I, I understand they're $10 billion in debt. You know, I hope Netflix doesn't go away because we all watch a lot of Netflix, you know, but um, so it's constantly changing. But at the end of the day, what's great for filmmakers is that they still need content. They yeah. still need storytellers. Storytellers have been around since Greek mythology. They've been around sitting around the campfire. And and at the end of the day, you've got to see yourself as a storyteller. And so you'll always have uh, uh, a place. There'll always be a home for content. You know yeah. what that content is. You know, I, I think like for actors, um, you know, if you take my wife specifically, I remember my wife, uh, she went for an audition, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, and she's sitting in the room and there's all these like movie actresses in the yeah. room. Like, how do I compete? Like, where did they come from? Well, what happened was TV became cool for movie actors to do. And right. then suddenly the average actor is having to compete against, you know, a name actor from a television show or something. Right. And, um, you know, so that changes. But at the end of the day, content, uh, there's always going to be a place for content. It's your job to execute. It's your job to build a name for yourself. It's your job to understand film language and, and, and understand how to make a lower budget movie look like a bigger budget movie, 
so that your content gets purchased. Understand the marketplace, you know, understand that you can't just make a movie about a priest that rapes children and is buddies with a 90 year old. I mean, you know, it's like, right. Nobody wants to see that. Okay. Unless it stars Tom Cruise, you know? Um, But if you understand what sells and what companies are looking for and, you know, ask your mom, you know, Hey mom, what do you watch on TV? Okay. You watch lifetime movies. I'm going to set out to make a lifetime movie. What is a lifetime movie? You got to figure out what that is. You know, you have to understand that it's a, you know, it's a female centric thriller or a movie about, you know, it's, it's, you got to understand that. What is a romantic comedy or a, or a dog movie, you know? Right. Um, If you're going to make an action film, you better have some damn good action. Now you can make a spy thriller, right? Where you shoot, like we're talking about Philadelphia, DC, New York, but there's all this tension that's built, you know, maybe there's some fight scenes, but your fight scenes better be damn good because they got to compete against, you know, you know, transformers or something, right. but maybe there's a lot of tension, a lot of dialogue and a lot of drama that takes place in this, you know, in this, uh, you know, Northeast corner of the United States or something. And then you've got your big locations and, and, uh, and your, your spy movie looks like a million bucks and someone buys it, you know, even without a non, without a name actor. So execution, execution is key. Well, Michael, I, I'd love to have you back. Sure. <laughs> So that you can give us an update on the next five, seven films that you're working on. Um, thank you for coming on because this has been amazing and it's very interesting to hear your process and how you process. By the way, uh, I'm probably making a Christmas movie in Jersey, New York in December. So, okay. um, you know, we'll stay in touch and you can come visit if I'm, if that it's, I think it's happening. So I yeah. freaking love that. That would be awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll you see. Always fly out and, and come hang out on the side of the Western too. I, I do have friends and stuff and coworkers that are in LA, so I don't have an LA trip planned right now, but I'll take you out for lunch where we can get grab drinks or whatnot. Oh, and- we'll eat lunch on set. It'll be free for both of us. Oh, okay. You, <laughs> well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm going to put uh, Ferrari's Indie Film Hustle uh, interview of you in the show notes as well, because I think sure. that is just an unbelievable uh, hour and a half to two hour podcast. But I appreciate you coming on and talking to my audience. And uh, I'm just, I'm looking forward to seeing what you crank out. Where can people go to follow? Well, well first of all, my website, uh, I, I never update my website. It's really bad. So maybe I'll get around to doing that. Uh, but uh, they can go to Instagram for Mike Pfeiffer, but they might see my family and my movies. So sorry about that. Uh, Facebook um, uh, is Michael Pfeiffer. Um, uh, if you put a lot of political stuff up there, I'm not going to friend you because I don't want to see political stuff on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, you can always check my IMDb because you keep going back for that. You know, it's continually updating, but, uh, I look forward to another one. You know, maybe we'll come up with a whole nother angle to talk about or something too. And yeah, that would be great. We'll think on that and we'll plan it out. Thanks and- for having me, Zach. Appreciate it. Of course, guys, all of that will be in the show notes. So you can follow Michael, see all the sets and all of the films that he cranks out in one year. Michael, again, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time. So many lessons. Uh, I'm going to have to listen back on this one about (laughs) to pick everything up. Hey guys, just want to remind you that not only can you find the Full Frame Podcast on HMD's website, www.hmdfilms.com, but you can find us on Facebook, and most importantly, you can find us on iTunes, where we would really like if you could leave a review and subscribe. Thanks. Have a great week.